Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Pursuing your future doesn't end at 40. In fact, it may mark the beginning of knowing who you are, what you're capable of, and what you really want. But knowing what's next and how to get there can be a challenge, especially when old narratives play on repeat. Liberty Road is here to share stories so that you can consider your possibilities, pursue your purpose, and move into your future with intention. I'm your host, Netta Jones, and we're here to listen, learn, and liberate dreams one episode at a time. Well, hello, Liberty listeners. Welcome to another episode of Liberty Road. Today, you guys get to hear from a friend of mine, Katrina Waters. And I was just saying to her, I think it's been about a year since I bumped into her in a coffee shop. And it dawned on me because I've known her as a friend and a fellow parent at a school. But During that time, she went back to school to become a therapist, and now she's been doing that for some time. And so when I saw her at the coffee shop, I was like, we've got to have you on the show. So we finally get to hear from her. I'm so excited to have her with us today. Katrina, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. So many of our listeners are sort of wrestling with this kind of time in their life and what to do and how to pivot if they're going to pivot. So first, tell us about your work as a therapist and what you're specializing in. So I have my own practice in Pasadena, and my specialty is anxiety and depression, which, as you can imagine, keeps me rather busy. Yeah. But it's something I'm, I'm passionate about helping people heal from as best they can, because it can be so debilitating and it can be treated So that's where I I really come from. I see a lot of people in the creative industries, from writers and directors to musicians to artists. And then being in Pasadena, I also see people like JPL engineers and business people. So that's a nice broad spectrum of people. 
So I have a question about that, but let me first go into the fact that this is not your first career. You started out in something completely different and went back to school to become a therapist. So tell us about that work. That's right. As you can probably hear, I'm not from around here. I'm originally from London. And um, after university, I wanted to go into business and marketing. And my degree was in business studies and French. And I started on a management development training scheme with a big organization. And then after a year, I was like, I need something just more interesting, more exciting. And um, I met one of the PR team and I just kept wanting to hang out with them and ask them what they were doing and they told me about their work and I was like I think I can do this and so I scoured this is in the olden days where it was all adverts in magazines so I, I found some adverts for companies wanting PR people and I joined a small PR agency and I was an account exec just doing all the legwork of running photo shoots and writing press releases for companies like Coca-Cola, some big food companies, for Huggies diapers. And I was writing press releases about potty training your kid when I was um, (laughs) 25 and absolutely had no children in my future. um, And then I stayed there for a couple of years, moved to another agency. And then my husband, who's also British, was off the chance to come here. And we came here with our one-year-old And, you know, this is obviously a very different country from the UK. And I just, I didn't know, didn't have my finger on the zeitgeist here like I did in London. So I was like, oh, I don't know if I can go back to PR. And then I was like, do I even want to? I feel feel I want something a bit more meaningful. And um, then we had another child and then another. And there was a, a combination of things that happened. One is my son was diagnosed with ADHD. So we suddenly had contact with the school therapist and psychologists who were assessing him, looking at behavioral therapy to help. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. Mm. And then at the same time on HBO was a TV series called In Treatment with Gabriel Byrne. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. he played a therapist. And I was like, Oh, okay, that was the light bulb. This is what I want to do. And so I started researching schools. And luckily in Pasadena, there's an excellent school for therapists. It also is a school for teachers called Pacific Oaks College. It's part of the the Chicago School of Professional Psychology and just applied um, with that. I looked at the curriculum and I was like, okay, this sounds interesting. But I'm not very analytical, so I didn't delve into it too much. I spoke to some therapists I met socially, you know, what's it all about? And they they said Pacific Oaks is a good school. And sort of just like, okay, well, I'll give it a try. (laughs) You know, any hurdles, I'll jump them when I come to them. Yeah. And um, just really enjoyed it. What was it about whether it was the therapist you were engaging with, with your son, really through your son, or the series that you were watching, what was it that was compelling you? What was it that you were seeing that you thought, one, I could do that, or maybe it intrigued you, you weren't sure if you could do that, but what was the skill set that you were seeing, or or maybe it was the way they were serving people? Mm. It's partly to do with how I thought therapy was, which is some a therapist sitting there going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> 
How did that make you feel? And then yeah. I realized meeting these therapists, no, they're really interacting and with something like ADHD, problem solving, coaching us on um, parenting, giving us a toolbox of techniques to help us with them, helping us understand what ADHD is and isn't, and just being really quite practical. That appealed, but also with this background of knowledge they had and, and experience and science behind them. So there was there was that intellectual challenge that appealed to me sure. as well, as well as having to be a bit creative thinking, how do I make this work for these parents in particular with what they're going through? And um, and also obviously helping people. That's that's yeah making a difference you know they made a difference to us so which was the meaning that you had alluded to earlier that you were yeah. looking for a way to engage in something that had impact mm, yes so you were able to find that so if you don't mind me asking how old were you when you went back to school I was 41 uh, my youngest was a year old and then I had a four-year-old and eight-year-old at home as well so now I look back, I think, what was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Like, what made you think that was the perfect timing? I knew I was ready to do something. I loved being a stay-at-home mom, but I wanted a challenge, a different sort of challenge. And I thought, I don't want to be a stay-at-home mom all my life. Yeah. And I knew as a therapist, there's a bit of flexibility that comes with that. So, um, but I didn't think it through that much about later on the implications on um, working and kids. I think if any of us did that, we'd never do anything. Yeah, we'd never do it. That's so true. That's so true. So you go back to school at 41. The program is a couple years, two or three years, I assume. Yes, I did it in three years. It's a part-time program and you can do it at your own pace. Okay. And that suited me. And there was a combination of evening classes, daytime classes, or weekend classes. And um, so I just did it when, when it suited. And was it in that process of actually going to school and in the three years that you kind of came to the idea that your specialty would be in trauma and focusing on anxiety on, you know, panic and depression and those sorts of things? Or did that come later as you started to see clients and, and decide where to focus? Well, as I was doing my, my master's degree and found out more about, about psychotherapy, I realized trauma's everywhere. So many people mm. experience trauma and you can't and maybe even shouldn't be a therapist if you're not trained in treating trauma. It might show up as anxiety and depression, but there's often some sort of trauma behind either um, single incident trauma, something big happening like an assault or a car accident or something, or yeah. complex trauma, which is lots of small injuries, what I call death by a thousand cuts that impacts us, mm -hmm. but it's just, you know, regular, smaller stuff. And it's everywhere. So, but, you know, when I was in, doing my degree, you hear about trauma and hear some of the stories and it's like, <gasps> but then once you get trained in it and the degree only trains you to a small extent to understand from a more intellectual level how it impacts people. It's once you've graduated and do your own training courses and learn how to deal with it, how to treat it, then it's, 
it's okay. I can I can do this. I feel confident yeah. in my skills, things like that. And um, anxiety and depression just interests me. So it was already something that you had an inclination toward. Yeah. You just said something that I, I want to better understand. So you go through the degree itself, but mm. then there's training after that? Yes. So you get your degree and for the last sort of six, nine months of your degree, you have to do what's called a practicum, mm -hmm. which is where you're placed in a training site and you start doing therapy straight off the bat. And well, I was 43 by then. You know, I had, I'd worked before. I had some life experiences. I knew how to relate to people, but there were 24-year-olds who were doing therapy for the first time and didn't have that experience. But um, yes, I worked in um, some schools, seeing kids for therapy. I loved that, mm -hmm. seeing teenagers. And um, you have to do a certain number of hours before you graduate. And then you have to have a total of 3,000 hours of practical therapy experience before you can get your license. So then it was another three or four years of working as an associate therapist, sometimes for no money, sometimes for a little bit, getting my hours. And then you take your licensing exam, which is a four hour exam, and then you're licensed. Which as long as it is when you're on, on your end, we appreciate it on the other end, that <laughs> the people that are being licensed are people that are qualified and have had the experience and put in literally the time and the hours. Yes. And it is different in different states. They don't all have the same requirement. California is particularly rigorous and New York too. Other states, um, not nearly so much. So my degree is in marriage and family therapy, but in other states, you might be more likely to be a clinical counselor or a social worker, but we're all generally doing the same thing. Okay. And it was through that process and through seeing people and being in an associate capacity that you kind of decided, this is definitely for me. I'm not just interested in it, but I, I have something to offer here. And this is a way I'd like to spend my days once I get my license. Yes, that's it. I'm genuinely interested in people. I'm an extrovert. So that means I get my energy from other people as opposed to an introvert that gets drained of energy yeah. from being with other people. So I think that helped. And I was like, yeah, I actually enjoy this, albeit, you know, you hear some tough stories. I can only imagine. I'm going to go back to a question I had at the very beginning when you were describing your work and that you work with so many creatives. When did you niche down and say, this is the demographic I want to serve? Even though you said you're in Pasadena and there are lots of engineers and business types that you're also mm -hmm. serving. But where did the focus on creatives and working with, you know, writers and artists and people like that come from? Is that from your PR world? Where did that come from? I'd always enjoyed that sort of world. I nearly went into fashion design. And then at the last minute, I thought, I want to do business with fashion. Yeah. My mother plays the harp, so she's a musician. So I knew about that world too. In public relations, you're working with photographers and artists and designers and so I always understood that world. I think that was a lot of it. And that was what was so exciting about public relations. You're working with so many different people. Sure. It's a cool place to work. 
Did you find it was helpful to have a niche that you were working with or a particular demographic that you were working with? Were you being very intentional in marketing yourself as a therapist to creatives? Well, that's the thing. With my background in marketing, I was aware you find your niche, you identify who you want to work with. So there was there was some of that. But at the end, we're all people relating to each other. Yeah. You know, whatever our work is, we still have all the same emotions. They might come out different ways. But we're all, you know, struggling with similar things. Yeah. You know, as I've heard an expression, it doesn't matter if you're drowning in 3,000 feet of water or three feet of water, you're still drowning. So the emotions are still the same, whatever the context or the content is. Yeah. That's different. Were there any surprises along the way in terms of finding your personality or even your background in PR as being well-suited for this work? Anything that you were like, wow, I had no idea that I should have been a therapist all along. And and that's not fair to say because it's as a result of those other experiences that you are Mm -hmm. who you are today. But any surprises? I've been surprised how much I've used my communication skills in public relations and being able to coach people, maybe on speaking to their boss, giving them phrases that might help when they speak to their boss to help them be more solutions focused. So I might say to someone, you know, don't go to your boss with a problem, go with a solution or a number of solutions, and then they can choose. A, it's a development opportunity, but B, it shows your boss that you're um, thinking about this problem deeply and shows them you're capable. And C, saves them a lot of hard work, which means they're much more likely to respond quickly to you. So a lot of that communication stuff that I learned back then really has helped a lot. Sure. And also just being being in a corporate climate that you understand mm-hmm. the hierarchy, that you understand almost the HR nuances of all of it. You can coach somebody into how they should, to your point, ma- manage up. Yeah, Absolutely. And, you know, understanding the pressures of being in a team and um, having to deliver. And, you know, we're all, we're all under that sort of pressure. Yeah. Go back a little bit to when you made the decision to go back to school and to become a therapist. What were your concerns? You said that you're not a particularly analytical person, that you saw this opportunity and probably jumped in with both feet. But were there any concerns, whether it was about being a parent or the world you were going into, you know, any fears that you had to put in the backseat? Lots of fears, lots. Um, One was just juggling doing the work of a therapist and having kids, literally time, juggling time, but also not bringing home some of the the stories I hear, you know, managing Mm. to leave that behind for my own well-being as well as my kids. But also the pressure of sometimes people uh, have suicidal thoughts and you really want to be able to help them. Sure. So having the skills to be able to work through that, that's that's a really scary thought that uh, someone you're trying to help might be on the brink of, of hurting themselves. Is that part of the training, helping you to leave things at the office, so to speak? Yeah, 
And I had a colleague and he said when he left his place of work, he was working in a, a women's shelter actually, when he closed the gate behind him at the end of the day, hearing the click of the gate was a big sign to relax. Oh, wow. And I use sort of sensory stuff like that, hearing the close of my office door and walking down my corridor, the elevator, pressing the button of the elevator. These are all sort of signals. Okay, it's time to leave that behind. Mm. As I leave my parking garage, take a breath, leave that behind. So I am very deliberate in what I do to help leave things behind. In this particular climate, We've heard more and more about mental health. We've heard it definitely on the rise with adolescents and young 20s. But I've recently heard that even those in midlife are experiencing it at a record level. The stories don't exist about those in midlife in the same way because they're the people who are trying to hold down the fort. There's no time for them mm. to pause and think about their own stressors. And then we've had people in the public eye in the last three or four years who have died by suicide. What pressure does that put on you as you entered this world to help people? And now you see this mounting weight of mental health and the opportunity to help, but also the kind of the heaviness of it. How do you keep yourself mentally well as a therapist when part of why you went into this line of, of work, into this industry, if you will, is to have a positive impact and to be a resource for those people? Yeah, good question. Part of that is our training that we cannot be everything to mm. our clients and going back to the idea of suicide, there's a limit as to how much we can prevent someone from taking their own life. If they're determined to do it, they will do it. Obviously, we help them develop a safety plan and help them find ways. So knowing my own limitations, that I can only do what I can do, part of my training. That's that's part of it. Um, boundaries are also very important. That's something that comes up so much in my work, helping people with their boundaries with people. Can't tell you how many women we coach on how to say no. Yeah. And, you know, that, that's often very hard. So learning to keep my own boundaries. Um, there are some people that will try and push and ask or demand for more and being able to say no. That's self-care practice. I'm pretty good at self-care. I practice what I preach. Sometimes it's the small things, taking time out for a delicious cup of coffee in this town that has a lot of overpriced coffee houses. Yeah. <laughs> it does. <laughs> but yeah, really savoring a nice coffee, using all my senses to enjoy it. Looking outside the window, taking in nature outside, again, using all my senses, mindfulness practices, taking a breath, little and often throughout the day, just slowing down a bit, consciously going, hang on, do I really need to rush to the bathroom? Maybe I can walk a bit more slowly. Yeah, I'm lucky enough to live near the mountains. So every morning I look out the window and just take in the mountains, five, 10 seconds, if that's all I have. So there's a whole lot of mindfulness practices that I use, but a lot of it is just hand on my chest, taking a breath, 
noticing as I breathe in and breathe out, mm. things like that. Being very intentional, as I say, about leaving the day behind me and giving myself time to exercise. I'm also careful about what I read and watch on TV. There's some TV shows I'm like, I don't need to watch that yeah. traumatic TV show. There was a TV show, I think it was called Made, and I was like, I don't need to watch that. Yeah. I, I don't watch horror movies, <laughs> though I know some people find great release in horror movies. I can't stand them, so I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need that. There's other things to watch. I'm really intentional about what I do. As I said, I'm an extrovert, so I really love going out and seeing friends, Yeah, having a laugh with my kids, things like that. Yeah. So your kids, you talked about the fact that your youngest was one when you went back to school, and we know that you were in school for three years, and then you had the 3,000 hours of training. How did you navigate home life? How did you navigate and sort of renegotiate what your role was as a stay-at-home mom with your husband and with your kids? What was that like? Because I think that's a big question for a lot of people is, sure, there's something else I'd like to do, but how? How do I do that when I'm the caregiver in the home? Yeah, I was and I am fortunate to have a a husband that's really supported my journey and I would sit down with him and say, this is what uh, my schedule's looking like with classes. Um, So that would mean you having to come home on time these days. You know, so we're all compromising, things like that. There were some crazy times when I was at school but also doing my practicum Um, my training and I was teaching a parenting class at a place in Burbank and I had to leave the home at 4 p.m. I would drive all three kids to my husband's work, drop them off there because he worked in Burbank at the time and then I'd go and teach a parenting class and then have two hours of supervision, clinical supervision and then come home at 9.30. And the kids loved going to daddy's work so they loved it and it was only for like an hour so manageable but still just having to go through all that and for those who don't live in the Pasadena area which there are many listeners that don't that's what a 25 minute drive Mm. that you had to get three kids in the car and get them up to his office before you were to go do what you were doing so you know that's a lot but I think The point you're making is there's a price to pay, but if you're willing to do it and if you have a partner that can support you in the process, that it's doable. How long did that go on? I want to say a good couple of years. Yeah. Sometimes I relied on babysitters and we're fortunate that we could afford babysitters. But there was one babysitter who couldn't come before seven and another babysitter who couldn't stay past (laughs) seven. So sometimes... (laughs) 16-year-old would come at four and stay till seven, and then another babysitter would take over. That was when my husband had to go out of town. I was like, this is insane. But I'm fortunate that I can muddle through. I can adapt quite quickly to, you know, if something comes up. So that's helpful too, not having to have, you know, and this is what I learned from people with anxiety. They often need things to be planned and for things to pan out the way they've planned them. So I'm fortunate I can 
just pivot, as they say, when everything goes wrong. When things happen. Yes. What would you say to a woman who was about to follow in your footsteps, whether it was going back to school for, you know, to be a therapist or otherwise, but she was about to go into a situation where life was going to change and she wasn't going to be the primary caregiver for her children because she was going back to school or pursuing Mm -hmm. a new career. And I say new career because it's all the newness, it's all the unknowns. It's it's one thing to go back to something you've already known because you can almost anticipate what you will need to negotiate. But when it's all new and you don't know, Mm. there's a lot there. What advice would you give her? Like, okay, be warned, you know, do this or Mm. don't do this. Or what would you say? Oh, goodness, so so many things. One is the art of compromise. Mm. You won't do anything perfectly. And it would be very easy to think, oh, my goodness, I'm a terrible mother, I'm a terrible partner, I'm not being a good student. You're doing great. Yeah. Have conversations with your partner about how things might look. You know, be realistic. Have a list of chores and who's going to do what. And one thing that some people struggle with is being able to ask for help, even from their partner, let alone friends. So um, get comfortable with asking for help. People often love to say yes to helping someone out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just bear that in mind when you say, oh, I'm so sorry. Could you give me a ride? Would you mind watching my kids for a couple of hours? And that's a a big thing for a lot of people, being able to ask people. It's hard to ask. Yeah. You referenced something when you were talking about going back to school and when you were starting to work I can't remember how you said it, but it was almost a pause, like, oh, I, I didn't anticipate how that was going to impact. It sounded like the kids in particular. What were you talking about when you made that reference? It was things like them calling me and say, what's for dinner? And, and then <laughs> I don't know what's in the refrigerator. <laughs> Open it. Yeah. But, you know, when... I'm feeling good about myself. I'm like, yeah, that's that's okay. They were never going to starve. Yeah. And they're learning skills of making sandwiches. And, you know, it's okay. But obviously yeah. at the time, you feel terrible. We, we Kids are very good at reminding us either overtly or covertly <laughs> that we're failures. Yes. What? You didn't yes. buy any bread? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Which is so funny because we don't all come from that. We don't all come from having our pantries and refrigerators stocked. You know, many of us as Gen Xers are latchkey kids. And so it's funny that maybe we're overcompensating for our own experiences. I don't know. And and that's not to say that many of us didn't have a stay-at-home mother who didn't have a career at all and, you know, devoted Mm. herself to making sure there were fresh chocolate chip cookies when we came home. So I, I guess there's yeah. there's all kinds. I learned from teaching a parenting class that telling kids, you don't know how lucky you are. Back in my day, do you know what I had to do? I didn't see my mother till seven o'clock. Every night I had to make my own dinner. That doesn't help them learn. That sort of yeah. scolding, that's not helpful to anyone. You bring up such a good point. I saw this in Instagram and it was, if somebody tells you, or reminds you that 
that you're ungrateful for all the things they've done for you, that person was probably doing those things for themselves. And I was like, ouch, as a parent, that hurt. And I, I think the premise is they were trying to control you or a situation by doing X, Y, and Z. And we do that all the time as parents, right? Mm -hmm. We give and give and give, and we try and do better than uh, what we think our parents did for us. And then when they're not grateful, because by the way, they know nothing else, this is the only reality they know, then we think, you know, how dare you? If only you knew. But the reality is then we're not freely giving to them, right? There's some sort of condition on that. So you bring up a a really, really good point. I love the name of your practice. And and when I went onto your website, I didn't know it because I, again, I know you as a friend. So it was fun to be able to dig in a little bit to your professional life. But you've named the practice Bounce. Given your PR background and your marketing and communications background, I assume this was very much by design. Tell us what's behind that name. Yeah, it's... um... Everything from bouncing back from adversity to, you know, the energy and movement that comes from the idea of bouncing. You know, I'm very interactive in sessions with clients. You know, we'll be asking questions. I don't sit in silence. I say, well, maybe we can brainstorm ways to deal with that. And you can see which one sounds best. So we're bouncing around ideas. And so there's a a lot of that, and I like the imagery of just that, yes, that energy. Yeah. I've actually now put a bit on my website about where Bounce came from, so thank you for that. Oh, you did? Oh, great, great. We'll reference it um, in the show notes. So the listener of this podcast is a woman in midlife, and the intention is that she'll listen to these stories, stories like yours, to consider her possibilities, to kind of figure out how she'd like to move forward, to assess where she is now. So we like to ask our guests, like, what advice do you want to give to her about starting something in midlife, especially when so many of these women are stuck in those old narratives of it's too late and I'm getting too old and I don't want to really invest in myself at this point in life. Like I've sort of done what I've done or let's just invest in the kids or our retirement or whatever. What do you want to say to her given your experience? Mm, So many things. One is it's never too late to start. On my degree, Mm. there were 65-year-old women training to be therapists because it's something you, you can do till you're 90. But also, and this is what I do with my coaching clients, it's it's like, how do you eat an elephant? It's just bite by bite. So don't necessarily think about, oh, goodness, I'm going to have to retrain and then I'm going to have to do this. You just take that first step. You just chunk it, we call it, when you break something down into bite-sized chunks. Just go through it step by step. Looking at the big picture can be really overwhelming. Yeah. And don't delay dive in, don't expect to have it all worked out in advance, just try it and then pivot if it doesn't quite work out. Now, I I know that's a kind of a privileged Mm. position because sometimes these things take money and you don't want to waste money, but that's when my business training comes in and thinking about sunk costs, you know, you don't want to get to a place where you feel you've invested so much money you can't leave it. But just, you know, giving things a try. 
asking around, but not spending so much time researching it that you're not doing anything. One thing I've, I sometimes do with clients is create either a, a literal or just imaginary bingo card of all the different things they might want to try. And then crossing off one thing a week or one thing a month, whether it's um, learning to cook a new dish or whether it's learning to code on a computer or taking that Zumba class or yeah. martial arts or whether it's just going to a community college and taking some class and law or something. There's a mutual friend of ours that I know kind of inspired you with something she said to you when you were thinking about going back. Do you remember what that was? Yes, I do. We were at school. It was our, our friend Roz. And she said, you know, the time will pass anyway. Yeah. Three years will pass. You might as well have something really good to show for it, like going to college. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yes. It's a really good reframe when we think back to your elephant and bite by bite. Like, how do, mm -hmm. how do we do this? And you just take a, yes. take a bit off. And I also appreciate you pointing out the privilege thing. It's something that comes up often when we say that we have the privilege to consider our possibilities. We have the privilege to pivot. But I also want us to be mindful that it doesn't mean that if we're not in the situation where we can do those things, that it doesn't mean they can't be done. It just might mean that we have to be more creative about finding resources or about ultimately making the decision. So for you, you were able to jump in. For somebody with limited resources would say, I can only jump in if I 100% know this is for me. There might be an opportunity to talk to therapists and really learn in advance, like what is it that your work does or to even work as a coach for some time. Do you appreciate working one-on-one yeah. -on -one with people? So I think there are ways that you can do that and many women have a full-time job and are doing something on the side until they finally transition. So while it's important that we're sensitive to that, I don't want it to be, well, I'm not a person of privilege. I'm listening to this podcast. This is ridiculous. Yeah. How am I going to do this? And, and to walk away. There's always a way. And we hear those stories over and over again. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us and, and some things we might consider as we figure out how to go forward. But before I let you go, we have our fast five. And this will be a great question for you because I, I have a feeling whether it's breath work or whatever, you've got lots of ways that you keep yourself grounded. What is one of those ways that uh, on a regular basis, something you do to just ensure that you're in the right mental space? It's quick and easy exercises. There's one called 54321, and just wherever you are in your space, um, you use all your senses, but one at a time. Five things you can see, and you look around and look at the color of things around you, whether you're inside or outside, the shape. Four things you could touch. How would it feel if you put your hand on the wall? Feeling the ground beneath your feet. Um, feeling the temperature of the air on your skin things like that. Three things you could hear, just tuning into any ambient sound or the sound of the birds. Birds in particular is a really good grounding thing to hear, it really is. Mm. Two things you could smell, just you won't be able to name it, but just imagining smelling the air. And then one thing you could taste, just tasting what's in your mouth. It's a really good grounding exercise. And then add on there, just hand on your chest and breathing, even one breath. 
is really helpful. What is it about the hand on the chest that makes that so different than just taking in a deep breath? There's no quick answer yeah. for that. It's to do with our, our nervous system okay. and um, you can put a hand behind your head and on your chest or in your stomach. Those are three important parts in the vagal system. And so it's particularly grounding there, but also something about feeling the pressure of your hand mm. is a reminder you're very much focusing on the body and the moment. So there's a few things going on there. Thank you, Katrina, for that. I, I have a feeling I'll be incorporating that <laughs> on a regular basis. And what are you currently reading? I am reading a book by Maggie O'Farrell called, I think it's, it's called The Marriage Portrait. It's set in Italy. It's great. Yeah. You're halfway there or? I'm nearly finished. She also wrote Hamnet, which is Hamlet's, I think, imaginary brother. Okay. It sounds a bit wacky. But it's a good one. And I'm thinking of tackling um, Hilary Mantel's book about England back 500 years ago. It's called Bring Up the Bodies. And I think it's about Thomas More and Oliver Cromwell, which doesn't sound like a very joyous read, which is why I haven't delved into it yet. And then I always have a stack of therapy books about I can only imagine what, what your bedside table might look like. And what is it that you're enjoy, enjoying about this stage of life as you have come into midlife? What is it that you have embraced and are appreciating? I guess it's the self-confidence that comes with, I'm not going to say middle age, mm-hmm. but being this amazing age. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the confidence to say no, the confidence that it's okay to say no to my kids and prioritize myself, whether it's, no, I can't give you a ride, I'm sitting down with a glass of wine, or, you know, it's not going to break them. They don't get everything they ask. Yeah, Things like that, being able to ask for things, you know, no, I need to go and exercise now, things like that. Yeah, You know, able to be kind to myself. No, I need this. Small things, nothing big. Small things. They seem small, but in the same way you talked about, what did you say? Uh, death by a thousand cuts, mm. not caring for ourselves. Not necessarily the trauma, yeah. but the opposite of just not caring for ourselves can also feel like that death by a thousand, mm. you know, nose, nose to self. And in therapy, we often talk about, they use the airplane analogy. You know, when the oxygen masks come down, you put your own one on first because it's only when you're in a good state can you help other people. Sure. I absolutely believe that. I think it's good for the health of your long-term relationship with your kids too mm-hmm. because um, you're you're building healthy boundaries. There's no codependency there. You don't expect for them to return the favor of you sacrificing your life. You made that decision, you know. Mm-hmm. I think there's there's some benefits to that. This dovetails really well into my next conversation. You have two daughters. What is it that you want them to know about midlife? What do you want them to know about this middle third, as I call it, of life that maybe you didn't know, that your mother didn't tell you? The importance of sunscreen. Yeah. <laughs> For reals, yeah. Um, growing up in the UK, yes, we had sunscreen on vacation, but that was it. So yeah, sunscreen every day. It's, there's still a whole world of possibilities open to you in midlife. Yeah. You don't need to settle down and it doesn't mean you're just staying in every night and watching TV. You can get out and do things and have fun, try new things. 
and uh, I went on <laughs> I went on a roller coaster last year at the top of New York, New York in Vegas, oh and it was because I have to do this. Yeah. I I was fifty one. I thought I have to go on a roller coaster. It was awful. It was terrible. <laughs> I'm never doing it again. <laughs> but you did it. But you did it. <laughs> I don't want to be one of those moms that's always. Oh no, can't do that. Or swimming in a pool and not getting your hair wet. You know, yeah. I want to be able to just really immerse myself. So, yeah, there's a world of possibilities. You can still act young as appropriate, you know. Yes, yes. Thanks for that caveat. <laughs> as much as we can blame society on doing away with women in particular in middle, middle age, we, you know, we often feel unseen and invisible. But I think that some of that begins with us, that responsibility of seeing ourselves and taking, you know, the proverbial roller coaster, whatever that is for us, saying yes to those things. Uh, yeah, I went to see Grace Jones in concert at the Hollywood Bowl. And she's something like 75. She's standing there with a hula hoop. Oh my gosh. Just yeah. doing it. I saw Blondie in concert. Same thing. She's still got it. Yeah, it's those women that when we see them, we sort of believe in what we're capable of. Like they're showing us the way. Mm -hmm. As you're doing in this podcast, by the way, your story is going to embolden someone else, which is really why we're here. The last question I have to ask is, how has your work as a therapist saying yes to a second career, how has it liberated you, Katrina? Good question. In so many ways, it is seeing the possibilities that um, life can offer. But also, I'm essentially my own boss. So that's given me a lot of liberty to set my own hours, yeah. decorate my office. Yeah. <laughs> the way. It's not quite the way I want it, but anyway. And work with the people I mm -hmm. want to work with that I know I can help be the sort of Mother, I want to be showing my kids that I'm there for them, but I'm also yeah. doing stuff for me. Yeah. So many things. It's very flexible. Which I think when we hear more and more of these stories about women in this stage of life, we hear more and more how they couldn't go back to work to a traditional, people weren't willing to take on a 50-year-old, mm. especially if she's emerged from being a stay-at-home mom for so long. So this entrepreneurial sort of path, whether, and, and I, you know, entrepreneurship, I define as what you're doing. I define as somebody who's writing a book, somebody who's starting a podcast, whatever it is, it doesn't have to be a traditional for-profit business, a nonprofit to mm. kind of taking that on ourselves and saying, nope, we've still got something here that we want to do and that we're able to offer. So thank you for sharing how it's liberated you. And there's so many people that have been liberated and supported in their own mental health journey as a result of the work that you're doing. So it's the gift that keeps on giving. Thank you. It's a real privilege to be a therapist and be allowed into people's inner, inner lives 
to be allowed to help them with some things that they're not able to tell people close to them. So it's a it's a very privileged listen. But it's also a privilege to be here with you today. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Katrina. A, a gift, a gift to hear your story. And like I said, for so many women who are on the fence about starting something new, hearing kind of your journey and your path and how you navigated that will be a tremendous help. So thank you for spending this time with us. And Liberty listeners, thank you guys for hanging out with Katrina and me, and we will talk to you next week. Bye for now. Liberty Road is broadcast on all platforms, Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcast, and more. If you like what you've heard, please follow, rate, and review Liberty Road on Apple Podcast and Spotify. It helps us to know if these episodes are inspiring and equipping you to move into your middle third with intention. Liberty Road is created by executive producer Netta Jones, supervising producer Elizabeth Windham, producer Julia Windham, and music by Jack Jones. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.